On this episode of Propaganda, we're exploring fear. Personally, I am a scaredy cat. I'm quick to admit that I get really into movies and TV shows. And so if something gets too suspenseful or violent, I have to turn off the volume or fast forward through the terrifying parts. I just can't handle it. I have a zero, basically a zero tolerance. I have to look away. Horror films really get to me. And that's what they're supposed to do, to push us to explore fear. Scary films make us stop to reconsider why we're so afraid to begin with and why we feel vulnerable. Writer Leela Janelle has this essay on the, in my opinion, most terrifying scary film genre of all, the home invasion movie. You know, where people are attacked or threatened while they're just minding their own business at home. Why are we so terrified of that improbable scenario? Leela Janelle explores. In the 1967 movie Wait Until Dark, a sadistic criminal, played by Alan Arkin, traps housewife Susie Audrey Hepburn in her New York apartment, forcing her to fight him to the death. Watching the film recently, my mind toggled back and forth between critiquing its ludicrous plot and surrendering to the terror it depicts. What lends such an absurd movie such real power over my mind? Home invasion movies like Wait Until Dark, Panic Room, Funny Games, In Their Skin, and When a Stranger Calls often feature women in peril, but offer no shiny knights to rescue them. Instead, the women are trapped with their perpetrators, forced to fight back or die. They are movies, I think, about a kind of sadism and sociopathy that fuels sexual and domestic violence in our actual homes, but which we have no language to address directly. The dark, dangerous side of masculinity in these stories is instead embodied by the invading criminals, while kind and generous men are portrayed as rather useless. And wait until dark, and in the more recent film Panic Room, men are compartmentalized. Audrey Hepburn's character has a kind, somewhat codependent husband, who's inadvertently mixed up in the story's convoluted plot but who's absent during the terrors that occur. In Panic Room, likewise, Jodie Foster's character is a recent divorcee, whose wealthy ex-husband purchases the apartment that's broken into as she and her daughter spend their first night there. What's going on? People in the house. Hey! You're in the elevator. Pull up. Head down. He shows up later in ineffectual fashion, but has nothing to do with the menacing violence that transpires. Among these film's villains, the sadism is confined to one lone madman. In Wait Until Dark, three men invade Hepburn's apartment, the thuggish Carlino, who's killed off early, Mike Tallman, an ex-GI who's turned to crime, but who retains a conscience, and the sociopath Rote, played by Arkin. Of the three, only Tallman emerges as a whole person, capable of making a connection with Hepburn. Rote, by contrast, is almost a specter, a character whose actions and words make no logical sense, but instead seem to anthropomorphize sociopathic aggression. Did you know they wanted to kill me? I did. I knew it even before they did. They were awful amateurs, and that's why you saw through them. I saw through you, too. No, not all the way, Susie. 
Even now, not all the way. This pattern is repeated almost exactly in Panic Room. Jared Leto's character is a sniveling drug addict who's organized a robbery to seize the lost fortune of his recently deceased grandfather. Forrest Whitaker, one of the robbers, has a conscience. Like Foster, he's a parent, and at every turn he considers Foster's well-being as well as that of her young daughter, Kirsten Stewart. Dwight Yoakam, conversely, as Raoul, is sinister, bloodthirsty, and seemingly more concerned with inflicting pain and spreading terror than with the task his group has gathered to accomplish. Evil in these movies is consigned to figures like Rote and Raoul. The other characters, one senses, could be satisfied or reasoned with, but no such rapprochement can be reached with madmen like these two. Home invasion stories like these establish a richness in their heroines' lives, a domestic bliss for Hepburn, wealth and high-tech security for Foster, and then insert these sadistic criminals to illustrate that no woman's life, no matter how stable and pristine, is free from this danger. Hello. Sorry to disturb you. I'm staying next door. Please, come in. Wow, that's a really great set of clubs. Mr. Farber. What? Funny Games by filmmaker Michael Haneke is a sort of heightened meta-take on this concept. The American version features Naomi Watts and Tim Roth as a wealthy, cultured couple whose weekend getaway at a lake house is horrifically interrupted by two young, psychotic invaders, Peter and Paul, who hold them captive in the home. If he hollers, let him go. Eeny, meeny, miny, Haneke investigates an unnerving aspect of sadism by having his invaders speak with a heightened politeness, take exception to every perceived slight shown by their hosts, and display an immature preoccupation with games and rules. Like Raoul and Rote, the two reflexively blame their captives for every misfortune they visit upon them. Haneke's film ultimately becomes about his relationship with an indictment of the viewer, which is disappointing. Paul consistently breaks the fourth wall and attempts to make the viewer complicit with his actions, and by the end, the film ceases to be about Watts and her family at all, robbing the home invasion film, in my opinion, of its raison d'etre. Authors Richard Gellis, Murray Strauss, and Suzanne Steinmetz open their book Behind Closed Doors, Violence in the American Family, a study of statistics regarding sexual and domestic violence in American homes by stating, with the exception of the police and the military, the family is perhaps the most violent social group and the home the most violent social setting in our society. Our culture has shown very little facility with addressing the type of violence Gellis and Strauss document, however. Perhaps as a result, we create entertainment that depicts a wildly violent world in which homes are peaceful oases rather than the more statistically accurate opposite. We deny and repress the idea that partners ritually abuse one another or that children are trapped with violent or incestuous parents. Such scenarios, while prevalent in our society, constitute an infinitesimal amount of our narratives. How do we process these wounds and betrayals, then? 
To my mind, it's through stories like these. Storytellers distance the abuse from the spouse to the anonymous criminal. Following that, they distance it further, quarantining the irrational cruelty present during abuse and violation within the story's irredeemable villains. Home invasion movies offer a chance to see women and children confront violence within their homes. They must fight back against homicidal adversaries. Viewers who may have experienced unsafe living situations can see them depicted, can watch actresses confront life or death moments in perhaps the only stories which offer such scenarios. Shortly after watching Wait Until Dark, I saw the TMZ elevator video of Ray Rice punching his then fiance. I, like most viewers, was shocked. This was the violence behind closed doors is talking about, and which we rarely, if ever, witness. Could a two-hour film be told about a relationship containing that moment? Do we have the capacity in our cultural imagination for a husband or father who commits such an act? If not, what does it say about our collective imagination when our culture itself is brimming with people who commit such acts? In writing about Law & Order SVU, New Yorker critic Emily Nussbaum argues that the show offers a fantasy of a controllable world. As in a dream, SVU takes the grisly stories that dominate the news, Steubenville, Delhi, the US military, the torture house in Cleveland, and reorganizes them, reducing the raw data to a format viewers can handle, Nussbaum writes. For young women who are endlessly bombarded with warnings of how to avoid assault, watching can feel like a perverse training manual. Home invasion movies operate similarly. The terror only occurs when one's partner is away. The women try to reason, but when all else fails, they fight back, and in most cases win. It's a parallel world where one can vanquish an embodiment of evil, which bears no relation to the day-to-day -day life they inhabit. A happier development for our culture might begin with more transparency about our homes, and the admission that cruelty need not always break in there, because its name is already on the lease. When we can face that, we may no longer need boogeymen like Rote and Raoul to bear the burden of humanity's dark side for us. That was writer Leela Janelle. You can read more of her work at Bitch Media. You're listening to 